Welcome back to The Cypher with me, Christabel Nsiabwadi. This is the space where you'll hear from creators who are reclaiming narratives about spaces, places, and our cultures. On today's show, we're taking the mic to East Africa via New York, because, you know, that's how we do. And I'm speaking with filmmaker Ekwam Sangi. She's been a filmmaker for over 20 years, and she's a visionary behind the award-winning and critically acclaimed movie, Farewell Amor. The movie, which was made in 2020, centers around an Angolan family, the members of which are stumbling to find a way to reconnect after being separated for 17 long years. The movie puts meat on the bones of the, quote, African immigrant stories that we hear so little about in the media, or we don't hear enough in terms of depth anyway. So I'm going to be speaking with Ekwa Masangi on today's show, and we're going to ask how her movie, Farewell Amour, landed at Hulu, where you can watch it right now, and we're going to find out more about her trajectory. Ekwa, thank you so much for joining me on The Cypher. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. This is really special. Oh, I'm really, really excited to get you on the show. I'm going to tell you now that um, I watched the movie and I was mad because I was like, you want to make me cry. She's made me cry. <laughs> um, I'm glad we were able to get there with you. You really did. Well, <laughs> well from the first scene, i got to say, um, and I have other friends who when they watched it, they said, you've got to get her on the show. And I was just like, all right, well, I will. And then I watched the movie and I was like, Oh, I get why. And that <laughs> first scene, and we'll, we'll get to your career later, but I want to talk about sure. the movie so that people yeah. kind of know why I keep on mentioning Farewell Amour. Before I get to the first scene, tell me, okay. tell us what the movie is about. I've given a, a, a summary, but from you, what's the movie mm-hmm. about? It's a, it's a movie about longing. It's a movie about reconnection. Um, it's a movie about dance and music and love. Um, it's inspired by a relationship of an aunt and uncle of mine who were separated for 24 years due Mm. to visa immigration issues. And, um, I got to see sort of what that did to my aunt, to my cousin who had, hadn't seen his father since he was, I think five or six months old. Mm. Um, so essentially had never met his father in, in flesh. Um, and just the people that they had to become in order to endure that uh-huh. um, on both sides, for both my uncle and my aunt um, and cousin who are back home in Tanzania, um, you know, they, they had to, the crutches that they had to develop in order to endure that long separation. And then the question, my question was, my, in the case of my aunt and uncle, they actually never did reunite. My uncle passed away before he was able to go back home, um, which happens to a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, but it, at the time that I started thinking about this film, which was several years ago, it was sort of the what if question. Well, what if they were able to suddenly reunite if this was no longer the, you know, the, the visa was no longer the problem. Here you go. Here's the plane ticket. Go meet them. Then what? You know, mm-hmm. and I had this image of my uncle at the airport waiting for the family. And would he recognize them? And how would he feel? And what would he have worn to that first day? And where would he take them? What would he show them? Because, of course, you know, for years and years, they've been building in their minds this land of America where our husband, our father has gone to for so long. 
and how would they even like what would their first conversation you know so I had all of these questions about like what would that be like and what a trip that must be as well Mm -hmm. um and then decided I wanted to to explore that on film what an incredible motivation and it's it's funny because um talking about that first scene which I will now get to (laughs) um what struck me about it was the fact that they were backlit so you don't see the faces yeah. But all of the emotion is in the body and immediately you just feel loneliness and disconnection and they're like deer, they're like baby deer kind of trying to find their way toward each other. And it was um, it was heartbreaking immediately because they're, they're all excited about this thing. And often on the show, we talk about um, deferred joy or deferred mm-hmm. dreams and mm-hmm. So when I watched this movie and I, and even before then, when I read the synopsis, I immediately said to myself, this feels like actually quite a uniquely African or black diasporan story. I've talked to so many friends who have had one family member who went ahead to build and then the rest of the family was supposed to come. Um, and someone's always left behind and the, the, not it's not the tension it's more than that the it's not even a schism it's more than that it's heavier than that the mm-hmm. the broken hearts that that's created the sacrifice yeah. that you make the emotional sacrifices that people make in order yeah. to get the physical glory or the, the the potential of that and then you get there and it's a small apartment and yeah. it's not what you had when you went home but yeah. we're but we're here yeah. and so you're still holding on to the potential of this joy which then you realize in the day to day it's a grind, and then you're living in in a hostile environment. Quite frankly, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's it's one that I relate to too. That that happened to you know we all have someone in, in our family where yeah. we can see that happening. So for Absolutely. me, it felt like a uniquely black diaspora story because there are friends from the Caribbean who have that. And then it, it occurred to me, no, this is everybody. Anyone, it is anyone who's had to leave for whatever reason. It could yeah. be a war. It could be a degree, yeah. Ambition, it's happened to everybody. So it's such a universal story, yeah. And the way in which you've told it through this family is really, really beautiful. Um, it's Thank an you. Angolan family, and you mentioned civil war. I'm not trying to give too much away because I want listeners to watch it. <laughs> is, is that civil war the Angolan civil war you're referring yes. to? Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, and not because I have any experience with Angola. I've never been to Angola and my family is not from Angola. But at the time that I was working on this film, I was doing a lot of Angolan dance and participating in a lot of dance and music and just learning about the culture through the music and dance. And specifically um, Kizomba, which is one of the one of the dance styles that is um, portrayed in the film. And the thing that to me was so interesting about Kizomba in particular is that it's a couple's dance uh, similar to like a salsa bachata, but unlike salsa or bachata, it doesn't have a regular foot pattern to it. For salsa and bachata, you know, it's, it's a four count, right? So regardless of which way you're going, it's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, and you're doing the same thing with your feet. Whereas for Kizomba, it's completely dependent on, the leader's reaction to the music and how they feel about the music. And so the couple 
the two people dancing have to be very connected so that the person following knows what to do because the person leading is just going with their feelings, going with vibes, right? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I just thought that was really interesting for a couple who used to be dance partners, who used mm-hmm. to be in sync, literally, and now have now fallen out of sync due to time and space and all of these things and are trying to find their footing again. Meanwhile, um, this is the other part that hopefully people will, will encourage people to go watch it. He's fallen in sync with somebody else. Mm-hmm. He's he has a different dance partner now, quite literally, um, that he has to give up in order to make space. This is the crutch that we were talking about earlier. Um, he has to give up on that crutch in order to make space for his family to be here. And what does, what does that look like? How is that possible? Um, so that's how Angola came into the story. Got it. And dance as well. Yeah. So I was, I'm yes. smiling for the people who, who are only listening to this rather than watching this. I was smiling because I was like, I knew it. She's a dancer too. <laughs> and I say that because dance is, is, is not a theme, but it's a, it's not a vehicle, but you know, it's one way in which they, yeah. they um, explore those themes and there's a, a, a critical bit in the movie where the dad is basically saying he's given the story that we've all heard right which is mm-hmm. it's very hard to live in the west yes but what yes. he says is be yourself and he's talking about being yourself within that like all of the mm-hmm. major moments you do through dance so there's the yeah. there's a story of be yourself and what is really critical about this and i'm gonna i'm gonna paraphrase or maybe quote i don't know i wrote it down very quickly <laughs> is that you said you're the only one who knows um what you know and what you can do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this feels like the crux of the movie, certainly for the kid. It's like, if you're if you're a fish out of water and people are telling you no, and it's kind of the crux, crux of this show, actually, the cipher, which is like, you can yeah. only do you, yeah. so go ahead. And so the way she does that, again, not giving too much away, is through this dance. So then listening to you, um, were you, were you telling that to yourself, that particular line? Did you write that for yourself? Somebody told that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I am a dancer, I've always have enjoyed dancing. It's never been a professional pursuit for me. Um, and I was, it was, I think my freshman year of college and I was loving going out to dance clubs in New York. And <laughs> I know what you mean. Being, <laughs> <laughs> and just being, and finding a certain freedom mm-hmm. in that, but feeling conflicted because it was, it wasn't translating as me being, you know, Equa being free for Equa's sake. It, it seemed to translate to all these other people sort of hopping in and being like, Oh, you must be this kind of a person. Maybe you're loose. Maybe you're, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever assumptions people make when you're not um, restricted or inhibited in the way that you express yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I had a mentor who was telling me that, you know, to basically to kind of to stand within my power, like you're the only person who knows who you are. And so you have to, you have to represent who you are. You have to be who you are and not make yourself small for the sake of keeping other people reassured or comforted or, you know, something of that nature. So it was kind of a remix on advice that I was given probably close to the age of, you know, the young protagonist that we have in the film. It's such a scary thing to do, though. And it's it's the right kind of advice, I think. I mean, I yeah. give people that advice all the time. Or when that someone asked me recently, what, what 
what do you want your legacy to be? And I said, I just want my legacy to, to encourage people to dare to dream, right? Like do it. But it's such a scary thing to do, especially if you feel like you are other than now, you know, or or not other or always felt foreign. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. How does one, how does one do that in your opinion? How do you stay grounded in yourself when sometimes the ground might feel shaky or that it's moving or pulling you apart? Uh, I don't know that I have a solution. <laughs> you don't need to give <laughs> us a solution. I an answer. Yeah. yeah. You're right. It is, it is really tricky. And, you know, what I find specifically, and one of the reasons why I wanted to make their child character a girl was because a lot of that was very similar to my own journey of coming to the U.S. at that age. Mm. Um, Where and did you come from? I grew up in Kenya and um, I had come straight from a government boarding system, discipline, and, you know, this is the four-year plan and you're going to go. And I have older siblings. And so, you know, and everybody went to college. My parents also went to college. And so it, you know, it was very, it was a very straightforward thing. There wasn't the Americanness of like, oh, I'm here to find myself. There's nothing to find. You're going to go to school. (laughs) You found it, handle it. Yeah. (laughs) Get several degrees. You're not getting one. Not just one. All of them. (laughs) Collect them all. (laughs) All of the degrees must be yours. And then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm from an African family. So that's just how we roll. (laughs) And um, yeah, and just like that, um, that experience of being at that age, try and well, you know, you've you spent most of your life as a young person, as a young female person, growing up on the continent, um, where people tell you what to do. Um, I remember telling this to a boyfriend once who was feeling frustrated that, like, why women can't make decisions about simple things like, you know, what to order on a menu and you take them out on a date. And I was like, well, if you're dealing with a woman who's never been offered the opportunity to choose anything it's always been like this is what you're eating this is what you're doing this is what you're wearing or you can choose between this pair of jeans and this pair of jeans or you know whatever it is and then all of a sudden you're like you have the whole world at your beck and call what do you want it's gonna take me a minute to figure out what I want because I've never had to think about it before it's never been an option for me Mm -hmm. um and so thinking about that young girl who's you know grown up under struggle obviously with her single mom her father's abroad he's been providing in the best way that he can she's now shown up in the states which is supposed to be all the things it's supposed to be the land of milk and honey but it's also supposed to be the land of like horrible terrible things and mcdonald's and teenage pregnancies and you know whatever the heck people are afraid of for their young foreign children coming to america um we won't even talk about gun violence but (laughs) Um, That's a whole you know, other episode, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The things that our parents are always fearful of when they send us, especially girl children, off to the big bad United States. Um, and what that must be like for her um, internally to try and grapple with all of these things at the same time. Yeah, I think I think it would, it would scare most people into inertia. You would just be still. You'd be frozen right. all the time. Um, right. Now... I read that you were born in Oakland and you just mentioned that you home was Kenya for you. You're from Tanzania. Is that correct? I am. That is correct. I was born in Oakland. My parents were um, Fulbrights 
in the Bay Area. And uh, the Fulbright Scholarship for people who, who aren't aware. Very prestigious exactly. scholarship. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, at the time, there were a lot of Tanzanians who were brought over by, I think, the Carter government, um, you know, anti-socialist movements to try and re-educate Africans, mm-hmm. or, et cetera. <laughs> all of us, mm-hmm. including Kuruma, including Nyerere, all of us. All of us. Yeah, exactly. Point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then went back home mm-hmm. to, to, you know, share what people had learned in my parents had moved to Kenya in the 60s before coming to the U.S. during the first East Africa Union. And so we had a home in Kenya. And my uh, my parents taught at the, well, it used to be Nairobi University. And then while they had been away, it became Kenyatta University. But my father was an artist um, and taught art at graphic design and arts at Kenyatta University. And my mother taught um, early childhood education um, at the same university Mm. Um, and so that's where I grew up. Um, and then for, I was the only one in my family who had been born in the United States. So High five, me too. Was I wasn't born in the United States, but the only one who was born outside of. Abroad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, born abroad. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Look at us troublemakers. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I came back for college um, and decided on film because. I grew up at a time when we didn't have any local programming and I was frustrated by it and would complain and complain and complain. And my dad was finally like, oh, stop, compl- just make your own films then. And it was like, I will, I, I'll make my own films. I have no idea what I was getting myself into, of course. And um, the only black filmmaker I'd heard of was Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. And he used to release a companion novel. I think with his first five films, he did like a so his journal or something. He published a book to go along with his film. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think he did up until Malcolm X. And then, and he said in his first book that he had gone to NYU. So I was like, great, I'll go to NYU. And that's how I ended up in New York. I did go to NYU. Um, it was at a time, it was before YouTube, before digital, before Nollywood was popular and so nobody knew what I was talking about with these stories mm. of mine and these people I was depicting and what you know who what's happening <laughs> why do they look like that what are they speaking you know it was just so I was very discouraged by the time I um was in my senior year of film school where I just was like I think I made a mistake I don't oh know my that goodness. this is going to be it for me and very luckily one of the professors in Africana studies uh, Mantia Diawara offered a class in African cinema Mm -hmm. and I got to discover for the first time because living in living in the Anglophone countries on the continent we didn't really have that much cinema we had tv and a lot of it was imported British tv um, as opposed to like the Senegals, the Malis, the Burkina Fasos that had a lot of cinema and filmmakers who had been working, who had been very active since the 60s. Um, and so I discovered African cinema for the first time wow. at my last year of college. And I was like, oh, now I get it. I've just <laughs> been talking to the wrong audience. Huh. Got it. You know, because all of this time I had been explaining myself, explaining myself. Why do these people do this? Why do they sound like this? Why are they wearing that? Why are they? Why are they? Why are they? And finally, it was just the liberation of finding the place where I didn't have to explain anything. I could just tell the story and people would 
get it or catch up. Mm. And so that was really huge for me. And I decided to do a, a master's because, again, African family, we've ha- we have to. Um, you were you were trying like... to you were trying to write you were trying to write the balance right. I want to do what right. I want to do, but also I'm gonna give you the second degree, right? right. Yeah, second degree, and I decided to study African cinema, um, and I did that also at NYU, and then have been working um, and working particularly for that audience ever since. You're listening to the Cipher Podcast with me, Christabel Nsiabwadi. Go to our website, thecypherpod.com, to find out how to get our latest episodes first and find out how we support creators worldwide. Isn't that, it's, it's, it's <clears throat> fascinating because we, I think we, we come from a similar generation and, and uh, I was talking to a friend recently, like we're, we're the generation who was born in analog but we speak all the languages and yeah. no one really kind of, we were quiet. Like no one really understood us. We didn't even have a yeah. name that anyone really paid attention to, but now Absolutely. we're like, blam, we have all of the skills because we've been out here hustling and we can speak yeah. the old people's language, but we can yeah. also speak the kids language because yeah. we were the original actually. And so that's, yeah. again, that's what I'm hearing from you. Like you, you have all of the, all of the things. And so, you know, thinking about this brave new world where you talked about, people seem to get more easily discouraged because everything mm-hmm. is, if it's not immediate, it doesn't work. I want to go back to the film really briefly, but really talk about its distribution. Farewell Amore is on Hulu, mm-hmm. right? And the My, Criterion Collection. Yeah, there you go. How mm. did it end up there? How did it, how did it get there? What was that process like? So we went to Sundance. Um, we were very nervous because, as I said, I'd never been in those kinds of spaces before with any of my work. And I really didn't know how anybody would receive it. And, you know, my producers were really nervous because I had all these people with Angolan accents and I refused to put any subtitles on the film. <laughs> and so they were just like, oh, God, we're never going to make it. <laughs> And we just got rave reviews talking earlier about, you know, it's not just an African story. I had people from all from India, from Asia, from white people just coming up to me and being like, yes, this is the story of my this person and my that person. So it was very well received. And we got all the reviews from The New York Times and The L.A. Times and the, you know, 100 mm-hmm. percent tomato, Rotten Tomatoes. And nobody bought the film. And we were just like okay what's going on this is because usually that's the whole thing about Sundance right the myth is about like your film goes it goes really well and then someone you know you have these like late night negotiations in a back room somewhere where you know this one's bidding and that one's and you have this bidding war and then you know we make the big announcement while we're there that we sold it for you know x million dollars dollars. (laughs) (laughs) exactly and that didn't happen Mm. And we left um, and, you know, we were still sort of courting, courting, courting people. And then the um, and we had these people who were like, oh, my God, I love the film. I love the film so much. It's moved me. It's done this. It's done that. But we're also not going to buy it. Mm. Um, and it was just like I so we were just really confused. Mm. Um, and it was I think I think it had a lot to do with. A lot of these marketing or a lot of these companies just not knowing how to market it and feeling very worried because there weren't black people that 
they recognized, Black names or Black faces that they recognized. We didn't have Idris Elba in our film. We didn't have, <laughs> you know, whoever, Chiwetel. Right. <laughs> the two um, only Black actors in the world <laughs> after Denzel. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so they were just like, we, we, we don't know how to, we don't know how to move this. And then the pandemic happened or started and so all of these distribution companies were kind of folding. People didn't know what was happening. They were laying people off. We didn't know if we we're ever going to be in a cinema again, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so at that point, by like May, we were like, I guess we're just going to have to self-distribute. We're going to have to figure out how to put it online ourselves. Wow. This is May 2020? We yeah. Wow. May 2020. And we had gotten a really sort of skimpy deal from someone who shall not be named <laughs> a streamer that shall not be named um had given us a deal but a very tepid one um, we don't like that were, we don't like that <laughs> investors were very unhappy and just sort of like facing the reality of like gosh and so you know and I had we had to have my producing partner and I um she's also black woman um african-american and we were like this is racism this, this is <laughs> sounds racism. like it to me but it is yeah. is that yes we've done all the things we've done everything that we can do on our end as filmmakers we've gotten all the reviews we've hit all the marks and all the people you've, love the film you've, you've overachieved you've done the thing that all yes. the parents told us as kids you got to work yes. twice as hard and overachieve yes. and it still didn't happen right even though everyone loves it they're not going to touch it because they feel like they can't market it because they don't know black people. And so you're going to have to go talk to somebody about these, are all your golfing buddies, go talk to them. Um, and they did. And they did. And, you know, I, I don't know what conversations were had, um, but IFC came to the table and blessed them, you know, even if it took a long time, they did come to the table and came with a lot of love. Um, and they did a really good job distributing our film. They they have North American rights, North American and I think Caribbean movie, which is um, one of our, was also one of our producers, um, really wanted to um, distribute the film internationally. And then Netflix um, did a deal with us uh, for Africa alone, just for, I think it's like a two-year deal. Um, and so I have through our IFC deal, that's how we got onto Hulu because they now distribute onto Hulu and made the deal with the Criterion Collection as well. Um, and those are those are longer term deals, which um, which we're very grateful for. And it doesn't always happen for especially for films about Africans, about foreigners um, that aren't, you know, sexy with Salma Hayek or something like that it's like it's 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 tough so yes we're able to make a lot more films now going back to what we we're saying earlier we're able to make a lot more content but the distribution there still is a little bit of a bottleneck depending on what kind of distribution you want to do if you want to go the Nollywood route where it's like a straight to DVD thing there's plenty of things for that I could obviously put it on YouTube but if people have given you money to make your film and they expect returns, then, you know, they yeah. want to do different things. We had a pandemic to contend with, so we weren't able to do theatrical releases and things like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, our, 
our investors are really, really happy with with how the film has traveled, given all of them. Yes. Given all the things. All of the shenanigans. Say. I remember when it came out and I was desperate to see it and I looked on all of that because usually, you know, like they'll pop up and they'll surprise you. Yeah. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find yeah. it. So I just gave up. I was like, all right, well, I'll look for it on the interwebs. And my friend was like, nope, it's here. <laughs> and so, you know, I was absolutely thrilled. And so, and I should add that your product, you have a production company, Equapix. Is that yes. correct? That's and, my personal production company, yes. um, which I still use. Um, I still hire myself out under my company name. I love that. I, I noticed that on the movie and I said, oh, look, look at that. She was like, I'm going to make this happen by hell or high water. Um, so, <laughs> <That is right. laughs> so, you know, the movies come out, it was wonderfully reviewed. And as I mentioned in the intro, um, I've seen your credits pop up on, on a variety of things, including the, a, a Disney plus um, project um, called growing up, yeah. um, which again has, has a similar, has a tagline that, that relates to the theme of the film. And it made yeah. me ask the question, is that a theme that you, is that a theme that you want to explore? Like, is that, is that the heart of what you do? Or is it just a case of, it was just an interesting topic and I want to go for it. This is an interesting topic. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's true for a lot of filmmakers. It certainly is not true for me that I want to do the same thing for the rest of my life or mm. for a lot of my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, Someone like Martin Scorsese has done innumerable gangster films now, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Italian mafia films. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's certain people who are really into that. I have a lot of different interests. So I'm a little, I'm like, great. That was wonderful. And now I want to do a bunch of other things. Um, I do get still offers along the same lines of like, do you want to do this teen drama? Do you want to do this? family drama do you want to do this like african people suffering somewhere (laughs) please tell me the answer is no thanks (laughs) no please (laughs) no i mean it it needs to make sense i i will say that as i mentioned earlier you know we're in a very historic time where there are more black directors um female directors but directors in general than there ever than there ever has been in just like our history at all um, all of us working at the same time, we all tend to sort of get the same script too. So mm. it's it's great to have friends and be like, did you read that script? Girl, what did you think? <laughs> that was <right>. um, <laughs> But, you know, there's a lot of them that are really good stories. And, you know, and I think, especially at this time, where in this country we are contending with really having to do a lot of work to protect our history yeah. in a way that... I don't know if we've had this kind of pushback before. There's, it's never been like, yes, tell all the history. We love it. That's never been the case. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a different flavor to the resistance that we're facing right now because of how far reaching it is. And, you know, it's, it's not just the stories that you tell at home, but it's the people who are trying to take out of record what was previously in the record and what was previously known as fact is now being questioned all of a sudden. (laughs) And so it puts the work that we do as artists in a very new light. You know, we're not just telling it for the delight of seeing beautiful images of ourselves, um, but that there's a real sort of urgency to, if this is, this might be the only way that people know about 
our, that we know about ourselves. Because again, um, one of the things that I constantly try to keep for myself is that my work is not about teaching other people about Black lives. Um, it's, I really, like for me, this is a tool to teach myself about me, to mm. teach ourselves, my people, because understand that even for us on the continent, we never grew up watching our own selves. Mm -hmm. We never had access to our own history. Like our own histories were erased. You know, they were well, yeah. well hid, erased and hidden. Erased and hidden. And so we have generations now who don't know us, who don't know our leaders, our our firsts, you know, the Nkrumahs and the Mandelas and the you know, there are people who don't know Nelson Mandela, who don't know like what that story was. I know because mm. for us, it was like our whole lives were about mm -hmm. knowing those things. Yep. And there is a generation now that actually don't know what we're talking about. Wow. And so that puts a different urgency on it. Um, and therefore, and some of those stories are harsh and some of those stories are Black people suffering stories. Yes. And so the question is, well, how do we tell those stories without, you know, numbing, without having to sort of go numb and slit our wrists or something really tragic, you yeah. know, like, how do we stay engaged and still be able to go through that material? Because it's important material. We actually do have to face it. Yep. We have to tell all the stories. Yeah. And we have to do the healing work and, you know, it's something that I find really interesting is that I I find I've and this is just my lay sort of survey of, you know, the land is that it's a lot of the black women who are doing who are telling those stories, mm. who are who are telling the hard stories. And so what what is it that we need to do as a community to help, to encourage, to support, um, because as Black women filmmakers, I know this for myself and my friends, we're thinking about that all the time. We're thinking about like, how do I support my audience when I tell you this story? How do I support my cast and crew as we're making this story? What kind of mental health work workers do we need on this set? What kind of kumbaya circles, dance circles, drum circles? Like, what is it that we need in order for us to get through this and be whole and help and healed, or at least on the way to healing. Right. <laughs> so that when we transmit it to the rest of the world, they too can be, we can mourn it, but also be healed and sort of released from it as opposed to sort of arrested by it. Mm, so, because you're doing that work. Yeah, it's very hard. Yeah. So, yeah. so there is so much... In, in that, in all of this conversation and that last um, answer that you gave, um, but I want to ask, what's next for you in, in in all of that? In all of that, finding ways to heal, and in constantly, you understand that your work is in telling the story, so you have to look after yourself. That's what I'm hearing. Right. So, right. what are you working on now, and what is next? I'm working on a number of things now. Um, for some reason, I have gotten all the biopics <laughs> that ever existed. <laughs> on my desk and while it's hard because it's like man biopics are hard biopics are hard to do it's one thing to sort of make up characters from your head and just sort of imagine strange worlds that they exist in 
you know, when you have a real person, you you do have to treat it with a certain amount of care. And huh. in some cases, these are people who are still alive. Um, <clears throat> so I have a, let's see, I have a mini series um, that's not a biopic. I have a mini series that I'm working on um, that is an adaptation of the book, uh, Behold the Dreamers, mm. that I'm really excited about. Um, and working on that with David Oyelowo mm -hmm. and uh, Village Road Show, uh, two companies. And then um, I have a biopic about a group of human rights lawyers who were the first to bring an African president to the international court that was in on the continent in Senegal, mm. um, the president of Chad. His son Habre, who had performed genocide on um, many of his countrymen, and there were three lawyers in particular who worked really hard to work for 17 years to um, bring him to court. And he was convicted, um, convicted of sex crimes as well. Wow. Um, and he actually died in prison just last year, I believe, um, wow. from COVID. No, 2021 from COVID but was the first African president who actually went to, to jail from the International Criminal Court. So that story, The Dictator Hunters, um, I'm working with a company, um, Get Lifted, which is, um, uh, Get Lifted and Mandalay are mm -hmm. two companies, and we're working on a story about the moon bombing in Philadelphia. Oh, um, wow. That took place in 1985, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, it's a tricky one. Yeah. They're all tricky ones. ones. <laughs> yeah, the genocide story, the bombing story. Um, uh, yeah, there's a few things on. And then I have some that are in development sort of further out. I have an Althea Gibson story that I'm um, working on a, with a group on that's, you know, a few years down the line. Um, and a story on um, the popular comedian and performer, Lincoln Perry, better known as Step and Fetch It. Oh. Um, yeah, that I'm actually really excited about, especially in this time of <sighs> cancel culture. Yeah. And sort of what his what his trajectory was. So some Africa stories, some African American stories. Um that I mean, that's not all that I do, but it certainly is my main interest. And um yeah really excited about you are that. telling all the diaspora stories on the movie thank you yeah. thank you so much for telling those stories and thank, thank you, you so much for joining me on the cypher today i thank you so much for having me it's i hope you pleasure. come back I, I hope you come back i will absolutely absolutely i love this space excellent thank you that was ekwa msangi the director of farewell amour she joined me on the cypher Join me next time for another groundbreaking narrative busting story from our creative global black family. And remember, visit our website, thecypherpod.com and sign up to our newsletter to get access to our new episodes, which will land direct into your inbox. And while you're there, you'll also find links to all of our show guests. You can listen to our past episodes for free and you can find out how to join our community of creative change makers. Our production team includes Cerise Small, Larissa Witcher, Eugene Kidd and Ty Hughes. I'm Christabel Ntiabwadi. Thank you so much for listening to The Cypher. The Cypher is a production of My Lens Media Inc.